Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. another episode of Talking Tudors. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger. Thank you so much for joining me today. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support my podcast on Patreon and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. If you love the podcast and you never miss an episode, I invite you to join the Talking Tudors patron family. Visit patreon.com slash talking tutors for more information. Join the Talking Tutors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor themed goodies, you'll have access to patron only monthly giveaways. March's prize is a copy of Tudor England, a history by Lucy Wooding. Thank you to Yale University Press for sponsoring this great prize. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about education in Tudor England is Amy McElroy. Amy was born and bred in Liverpool before moving to the Midlands to study criminal justice, eventually becoming a civil servant. She has long been interested in history, reading as much and as often as she could. Her writing journey began with her blog, sharing thoughts on books she'd read, before developing to writing reviews for aspects of History magazine and culminating in her own book, Educating the Tudors. Amy's now finishing off book two, Women's Lives in the Tudor Era, while also working on a further two books. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Amy. How are you? I'm great, thanks, Natalie. It's lovely to be here. Yes, it's lovely to be speaking with you. So let's start with an introduction. Please just introduce yourself to our listeners and just tell us a little bit about you and your background. 
Okay, so my name's Amy McElroy. I have just published my first book, Educating the Tudors. Um, my background's actually not history, surprisingly. So I was brought up in Liverpool and left when I was 18 to go to university in the Midlands. And I actually studied criminal justice and then did postgraduate law. So I didn't actually study history at university, which is one of my regrets, but here we are. I've been reading as much as I can. And I think it's one of those things, if I ever had the opportunity to go back to school, that's definitely what I'd be doing. Well, that's such an interesting background. And and we are here <laughs> excitingly to, to speak about your new book. So educating the tutors. So what made you delve into this particular subject area? Uh, well, I think, as you probably know, Natalie, if whatever you read about Henry VIII, it always makes reference to him being a Renaissance prince and um, the first Renaissance monarch of England. So to me, I wanted to know what that meant in terms of his education, what made him different to his predecessors. And when I started researching Henry, I basically fell down a rabbit hole of looking at what he was taught, who taught him, where did his love of learning come from, how did it affect him in the future, was it any different to the normal everyday people of Tudor England, so it was effectively a big rabbit hole. Don't worry, I've fallen down lots of those in my time, that's for sure. <laughs> so, so when it came to formal education in the 16th century, what options were there for the, the different classes? Well, unfortunately, for the humbler classes, they had few opportunities to access a formal education. Um, many towns and villages did have either a dame school, which taught a skill such as sewing or spinning and basic, like their ABC, some prayers, a bit of reading. The petty school was set up for children up to around age 14, but there was no strict guidelines. So although it was a suggested age, it, there was no um, enforcement of that rule. At a petty school, they could learn basics in grammar, reading, writing, if the tutor was able to do that. But the main focus was on religion for formal education. After that, the opportunities kind of limit down to the wealthier parts of society unless somebody had a wealthy benefactor or they were entering the church so the church were keen to have men of education within their ranks so if they could get a sponsor they could attend one of the grammar schools they could go to one of the colleges at Oxford or Cambridge and there was also the inns of law as well so the inns of law hint is in the name, were for those that wish to study law and take a career in that path. But it also kind of acted as finishing school for the aristocracy. So they weren't necessarily interested in um, practicing law, but it helped them manage their own estates to have that bit of knowledge. So unfortunately for the public classes, they were very, very limited. Their opportunities came from more informal things like apprenticeships, learning on the job through domestic service contracts, that kind of thing. The main formal opportunities were pretty much restricted largely to the wealthier classes and those of the aristocracy. And who are the people that are delivering these educational programs? Did you have to do a special course yourself before you could do that? That's an interesting question, Natalie. The short answer is no, there were no um, qualifications to be a teacher, which is quite strange, especially 
nowadays when we think about the courses and education that our teachers must go through to enable them to do that. But back then, it was more of a variety. So you did have people that specialised in it. You had um, what they called pedagogues who were qualified tutors but anybody that could read or write effectively could teach so you might find a a woman in a small village that has the resources to be able to do so would either open a dame school and she could teach basic reading and writing herself it might even just be a room in her house that she allowed local children to attend for school you also had wealthy patrons within villages that wanted local children to learn so they would set up a school they'd employ a school teacher to come and teach the children and they would give the benefit of home so it was kind of an added incentive for a teacher to take that job because they got a house with it outside of smaller villages you obviously had the grammar schools and they were the more educated tutors so a lot of the tutors in grammar schools would have been a bit more educated than those that were teaching in petty schools and they would work their way up to the colleges so the colleges were staffed by regent masters who were graduates of those colleges but also they had um, non-regent masters who were either members of the college or of the religious houses that were connected to those colleges. So they were very well educated. Um, You had obviously people that would privately tutor the aristocracy and the royal family. They were pretty much the elite of those colleges or from colleges abroad that had been recruited over into England for the purpose of education. But yeah, it was a big variety of people. Um, you had, so the after the convocation, convocation of Canterbury, you had um, priests that were ordered to, when they weren't spending time on their religious duties, they were ordered to teach local children. So it did develop more after 1529, But before that, it was largely basically a free-for-all outside of towns and cities. Anybody could do it. Yeah, that's a huge variety. Goodness. Um, And we often often hear about the elite of the 16th century receiving humanist education. So what was this and how did it differ from other kinds of educations? Okay, so firstly, um, humanism came out of the Renaissance. So it's the literary aspect of that. And obviously the Renaissance was sweeping through Europe in terms of art, music, architecture and learning. But it's probably easier to explain what education was like before. So before um, humanism was introduced into England, education was largely focused on the seven liberal arts. So grammar schools would introduce the first three, which the trivium and they were grammar, rhetoric, and dialect. And then after that, people would go to college to study the quadrivium, which was arithmetic, geometry, astronomy, and music. So they all had their reasons behind that. For instance, rhetoric was used to compose sermons, and it was mostly focused on education for the church. So everything was to do with religion. Now, as humanism um, became more popular, that didn't necessarily change. They still kept the quadrivium and the trivium. It was just the way thing, the way they were taught and the text that they would study. So 
when humanism was introduced, it was known as new learning, but there was barely anything new about it. It was effectively the study of ancient texts. So texts that were written in ancient Greek and ancient Latin were studied to understand religion. You had authors like Pliny the Elder, Cicero for elementary education, the comedies of Terence for the art of conversation and the likes of Virgil and Caesar. And people would go out of their way to try and obtain original copies of these texts. And they believed that by studying these texts and understanding them, that was the path to true morality and religion. And the languages had changed. So the the language of Latin, for instance, was quite colloquial at the time of Tudor England. Ancient Latin was very, very different. So they wanted to understand the original. So humanists were focused on translating a lot of works. They would translate them into English. Those that were in ancient Latin would be translated into ancient Greek. All of that kind of thing. It it basically changed the way Latin was written, how grammar was studied. It also kind of introduced the way we spell. So you probably know from reading Tudor texts that early Tudor and even later Tudor, there was no real correct way of spelling. So they kind of implemented that, not purposefully, but it just kind of happened with the with the text that people were studying. But it also affected things like the handwriting. So that swirly signature that we know so well from Elizabeth was part of the handwriting through the humanists. And they also thought that learning should be enjoyable. So there was a lot of corporal punishment. The humanist tutors didn't agree with that. They felt that children would learn more if they could enjoy it. So they focused on trying to make education enjoyable and um, understand those original texts. So pre-humanism, they were focused on canon and civil law. The study of Latin was done to basically understand theology. And although that did remain important for those that were entering the church, for the aristocracy, it became like a fashion thing to be able to understand these original texts and come across as intelligent and well-educated. And you've already highlighted the fact that the curriculum obviously varies according to factors such as gender Mm. and wealth. But can you tell us a little bit about what was seen as important for boys to to particularly study and then for girls as well? That would be really great. Yes. So the, the one for both was religion. Religion was the key to all education, regardless of gender, class or wealth. It provided the basis even for learning their ABC. So their ABC had a prayer at the end. The first things that they would learn to read would be prayers. And that's how they continued. So they would base all of their education around that. For those that were going into more formal education, they may learn languages. So French for girls was very common amongst aristocratic females and that was because it was the language at the core and the language of diplomacy and it was seen as a sign of their rank that they had learned and could speak French. For men they were they would learn French as well but they may also go on to study Latin, Greek, any other language that we know Elizabeth was huge on languages she studied a large number of languages as did Lady Jane Grey the wealthier 
ranks of society, would also study things like poetry, history, even females. So females would study. It was just that their texts might be different. So recommended texts for girls would be more based on stories of morality and piety. For boys, it would be related to the Caesars of the day. So learning their military prowess and how they succeeded in battle and war, those kind of things. They were central, like the military aspects of education, as well as what I mentioned before, bits of law to to help them run their estates. So there was quite a large difference in what girls could study. It was only really the very wealthy females that were allowed to go outside of what was recommended. For your normal everyday little girl, they would be really restricted to learning their ABC and their prayers unless they were taught to read. And then the world was their oyster, depending on what they could get their hands on. And Amy, let's talk a little bit about Henry VIII's education. So how did that actually differ from his older brother, Arthur, and his sisters, Margaret and Mary? So Henry's education compared to Arthur's um, was not that different in terms of the curriculum. So they both received a humanist curriculum. Henry did not have a full governance of Greek So, but he did correct that himself later on. He took Greek lessons as an adult, which showed his love of learning. The main difference between Arthur and Henry was that we know that Arthur set off for Ludlow and they were his lessons in governing. So he was learning how to rule. Although Henry didn't go to Ludlow, he had the opportunity to learn, but it was very restricted. So he was kept in the company of his father. And the Duke of Estrada wrote to Queen Isabella of Castile saying that Henry had been kept with his father when he became Prince of Wales. But he also indicated that he thought that that was the best opportunity because who is better to learn from than his own father? So although Henry didn't get the hands-on aspect, he did have the opportunity to shadow his father for a better way of saying it. But those two did actually receive a similar education in terms of curriculum. For his basic education, it's thought that Elizabeth of York taught them, him, Mary and Margaret to write. So if you look at that handwriting, it's quite similar. And then he had John Skelton appointed, who was a humanist tutor. He was Poet Laureate. And there's obviously a lot of detail around about the education that Skelton gave to Henry. They did study similar texts, so they both studied the likes of Cicero, but Skelton also used his own works as well. So whilst he was teaching Henry, he wrote Speculum Principis, or Mirror for Princes, which was full of advice and like chivalric behaviour that he would expect from a prince. So that was written especially for Henry and Arthur would have had similar works, but they weren't necessarily the same. So they did have a very similar education. Henry had the addition of a role model in that he had William Blount, fourth Marin Mountjoy, who'd been tutored by Erasmus. So he was kind of Henry's role model um, companion. They'd spend time together Henry was also taught, and Arthur would have been taught to joust, fight on foot, archery, the sports that we know Henry well for. 
all of them, all the siblings, the four, were actually taught French by the same tutor, which I find fascinating. His name was Giles Dews, and he actually also taught Henry's daughter as well. So I find that quite interesting. Outside of that, for the girls, they didn't necessarily receive the same. They did receive a very good education for females at the time, but theirs was centred around their deportment, dancing, music, needlework. They obviously had Margaret Beaufort as their grandmother, who was very pious. She was also very well versed in French, which helped the girls be able to speak French, especially Mary, who would later live there. And they would share some lessons with Henry, but it would have been the basic ones, especially with the age difference between Henry and Mary. But where Henry went on to study history and things like that, the girls wouldn't have done that unless they were reading texts of their own. They largely focused on the more practical side of their education on how to run a household when they were older. So they would have had basic arithmetic to be able to do that. Whereas Henry would have gone on to study things like theology and um, different languages. It sounds like in order to cover all of this content, they would have been really doing lessons almost continuously. Was there any indication while you were doing your research as to, you know, how many days a week they spent on lessons or was it every day? Any any ideas about that? Um, The most I found was that for schools was six days a week. So... It surprised me that compared to today where we have Easter, summer, Christmas, half times, like there was none of that. They did have religious holidays, but they didn't have a huge summer holiday. Like now they were in school six days a week and they were long days. And the aristocracy were really no different. Their day was broken up with meals and free time, but they did have days set out according to lessons and they were pretty long days presumably with you know religious practice and learning that's pretty much your entire day spent on one of those activities amazing so do you think that henry viii's own education influenced the decisions he made when it came to educating his own children i would definitely say yes henry although we know that obviously he he did react sometimes impulsively Um, He also rewarded loyalty. So, for instance, Elizabeth Denton, who was the mistress of his own nursery, he appointed her to supervise the nursery of Mary. And there's signs throughout that make you realise how much he valued his education. So he met Erasmus as a boy and challenged him to provide something for him. And Erasmus did that in a panic and provided it he wasn't very happy that he hadn't been forewarned so he did do that and later on Henry actually wrote in Latin to Erasmus and Erasmus couldn't believe that this was the same boy because of the skill that he was showing in his Latin and it was Mountjoy that had to say it actually is we also know that he frequently debated theology and philosophy with Thomas More. And I think his love of learning impacted that. And we can see when he's older, when he's appointing people from humbler backgrounds. So Thomas Wolsey's Cromwell. And I think that made him realise how important education could be. And he wanted his children to have that same thing. And I think that's 
evident in the fact that we have Giles Dews, who he appointed to tutor his own daughter. So I think that infers that he must have realised how beneficial he was as a tutor to himself and his siblings to then appoint him for his own daughter. And do we know anything about the, the Tudors for Elizabeth and Edward? We, we do, yes. Yeah. So um, Mary's education was initially governed by her mom, Catherine of Aragon. And even after Mary had her own household, Catherine remained very interested in her daughter's education. We know Catherine of Aragon was exceptionally educated for the time. And we have Veeves, Jean-Louis Veeves, who was, he wasn't necessarily appointed as a tutor, but it shows that the work that he was commissioned to do for Mary was an impact on her whole curriculum. So things that he would recommend, um, the studies that he gave to her as her recommended text, so such as St. Jerome and readings of the Bible, it was all about morality. And he wrote The Education of a Christian Woman for Mary. And I think when she reached nine years old, she was sent off to Ludlow in a similar manner to Arthur. And she was appointed a tutor then of Richard Featherstone, who was humanist. So she did receive a partly humanist education, but it was quite restricted in terms of they kept to what was recommended by Veeves. Edward and Elizabeth had seemed to have had a bit more freedom. Uh, Edward had various tutors throughout his young life, but they were humanist tutors. So he was tutored by John Sheik, who, when he became aware of Elizabeth's intelligence, he asked William Grindle to come to court to teach Elizabeth. So they did share some lessons and I don't know if that's impacted in the religious leanings, but you have to question whether it was or not. Um, so we know Elizabeth's childhood was dominated by her governess, so Kat Ashley, who was educated very well. She started off Elizabeth's languages in education in languages before John Picton took over, and then later William Grindle. I think Elizabeth did benefit from the amount of time that she spent with Edward in terms of what she could study because she could share some of his lessons, whereas Mary wasn't in that situation. And both Edward and Elizabeth were taught French by the same tutor. They were also both taught that swirly handwriting by Roger Ashen. So there are very close links between the education of Edward and Elizabeth. We also know that Elizabeth effectively did what she wanted. So I think she had free range and free access to texts and she would effectively read whatever she wanted, even those that weren't recommended for Mary by Veeves. And they benefited from having humanist tutors. Edward is known to have had one that was a severe disciplinarian. Whether he actually struck Edward or not, we don't know. But the others were very much, they want children to enjoy education. I don't think anybody could actually say that Mary's education was any less. I think it was just different. I think hers was compounded by Veeves and they kept to his recommended reading, whereas the others had a bit more freedom. And they also had tutors that were leaning towards Protestant 
side, whereas Richard Featherston, unfortunately for him, remained Catholic. And he was actually later hung, drawn and quartered for refusing to sign the oath of supremacy. So poor Mary actually lost her tutor as well, or, or who was previously her tutor. That's so fascinating. It's interesting to think, as you say, about the different religious paths that they took, considering, you know, the differences in in the education as well. But Amy, this has been so fascinating and really, really interesting. But I can't let you go just yet because there is something we do at the end (laughs) of episodes of Talking Tutors. And that's what I like to call a little game of 10 to go. So just 10 questions to get to know you a little bit better. So the first one is the last book that you read. The last book that I read was actually King of Kings by MJ Porter. So it's historical fiction. Uh, it's about King Athelstan and all. it's all medieval kind of thing. But yeah, I really enjoy MJ's books. So that's what I've just finished. And I'm now on to Caroline Angus. Wonderful. And what about a film that you've gone back to and seen more than once? Can it be a series? Of course, yes. Wolf Hall. I've watched Wolfhall so many times. It's unbelievable. Yeah, I always go back to it. That is very atmospheric, I have to say. Very (laughs) atmospheric. And what about a favourite historic house that you like to visit? Oh, that's a really hard one. Um, (laughs) I I really like Ludlow, but my favourite is the Tower of London. I just absolutely adore it. I I can't get enough. Absolutely love the Tower of London. Yeah, I have to agree with you. I love the Tower of London as well, but I do also love Ludlow. I'm hoping to go back soon, so I can't wait. Um, What about an ideal Sunday morning for you? What does that consist of? Ideal Sunday morning, I'm an early start, so I'm always up by six, even at the weekends. Coffee, have a bit of a relax, read, maybe do some research. Um, If I do write on a Sunday, I try and keep it limited because otherwise I feel like I haven't really had a weekend. But usually I've either got my head in a book or I'm stuck down a rabbit hole somewhere. Well, that sounds absolutely perfect. And what about a new skill that you would like to learn? I think I'd I'd like to learn Spanish. Uh, my my dad lives in Spain so although I can get by on can I have a coffee please and things like that I would love to be able to speak Spanish fluently excellent yes I love languages as well I want to speak all the ones that Elizabeth spoke (laughs) that would be my goal and do you have any pets I don't but my my brother has a one-year-old Cavafoo and he is the most adorable thing I've ever seen in my life. So I am trying to steal him. So he's got me pup sitting for a week this year. So, you know, he might become mine accidentally. Yeah, that's right. You can keep him after that. And what about what's your favourite comfort food? I know you're still pretty chilly there in England at the moment. My favourite comfort, I've actually got two. So it's either spaghetti bolognese it's just my go-to or scouse which is a liverpool dish it's basically a stew but it it is definitely my comfort food i made it at the weekend and filled my freezer with portions of it so yeah lovely i'll have to look that one up because i do like stews so and what is something that you're looking forward to this year well my second book is going to be submitted very shortly so i'm quite looking forward to that Um, I'm looking forward to see what the publisher comes up with, with cover designs or that kind of stuff. And I'll be starting to write my third. So amazing. (laughs) (laughs) You are very busy, aren't you? 
Yeah, it's exciting though. And so what do you do to relax if, when you're not doing all of all of the writing and researching? Um, generally either reading not non-fiction, well, sorry, historical fiction. So I tend to either step back a bit from the Tudors, so I'll go back a bit more medieval or forwards into the Stuarts. But I tend to just, I stick with history. If it's not that, I'll be watching Lord of the Rings. <laughs> Wonderful. I like Lord of the Rings as well. So the very last thing that I ask all my guests is for a Tudor takeaway. So this is just something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. So do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? Want to give two? Of course, yes. So as a contemporary horse, I would go with the works of Roger Ashen. I think it's a privilege that we've got so much information from him, even down to his meeting with Lady Jane Grey. You just get so much information from him that is just effectively him telling somebody what he's been doing that day. So for him at the time, it's probably just a case of, I met Lady Jane Grey today, blah, 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 blah. Whereas us, it's like, wow. And I think it's just fascinating, like the things that they were interested in at the time. Like he wrote a whole work about why archery was important. And I think for us now, we're like, huh? But back then you can understand why, why it was so important. And that obviously by doing that, he gained some favour with Henry and things like that. So you can see how the circle of scholars worked. So I definitely say that one. For a modern day course, I would go with Nicholas Orme, Education and Society in Medieval and Renaissance England. It's absolutely brilliant. Wonderful. And I can feel some more book purchases coming on. Isn't that terrible? This happens to me every single episode. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, well, it could be worse, I guess. Amy, yes. thank you so much for coming onto the podcast and talking tutors with us. I wish you all the very best for your upcoming projects. And hopefully we can lure you back later on to talk about those as well. Oh, definitely, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Mm-hmm.